you know, people will ask me, like, are you glad you're out of it? I'm like, oh, no, I, I miss, I miss it. I mean, like, it was, leaving it was not an easy decision. It was a very difficult decision. Um, the industry just forced us to, like, mm-hmm. we didn't have a choice. Um, but yeah, it was great. I mean, I, at 24 years old, I was given, I was named the general manager of the bookstore business. So, you know, this is now at probably six locations and charged with expanding. And I went and opened a location in Bristol with basically a blank check. From the IT company, it's made right here. The stories of East Tennessee founders, creators, and builders. From the idea behind it to the impact it had on the community, their employees, and their personal lives, we're taking you behind the scenes of the movements they built. Hey, it's Paul Sponsia. So how many of you started looking at financial statements when you were 14? And how many of you were looking at them with your dad? That's a little bit of the story of Adam Slack coming from a family of entrepreneurs and risk takers, a dad who wanted to expose him to the financial side of a business early, to parents who worried less about the specifics of the grades, but gave him kind of the broad range of here's what we expect, and we're going to let you kind of manage that as long as you don't get too far off the rails. This is Adam's story. It's a cool story. He's helped a lot of people in our community. His company, Two Roads, is making a big impact on businesses in the Knoxville community. And his story is just a cool story. This is part one. You get to hear a little bit about his background, his life, his family of entrepreneurs, how he kind of got to the point of starting to take these kind of risks. So listen in. Born and raised in Knoxville, um, East Knoxville, actually. In about 87, 88, we moved west and went to went from you know East Knoxville to Sequoia Hills. It was a little bit of a transition. Yeah. Um, yeah, so lived out there. It was a very idyllic life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, didn't really want for, for much. Um, what, was your, what were your parents doing at the time? So my dad at the time had just started Late Flight Sea Ray, which was a boat dealership here in town. Hmm. Um, a lawyer was a partner of his, and they did that from about 87 to 92. Hmm. And I think that's what really pulled us west was my dad also had been in uh, television advertising. He sold TV ads. Once Lake Flight really started getting going, it was west. We moved west. Hmm. Um, and that was very interesting business. I mean, selling boats is, yeah. you know, not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's feast or famine. Was he always an entrepreneur? Like, did he have, a, like, a traditional career that he left? Yeah, I mean, doing advertising was definitely more of a traditional career. I mean, first he sold Peterbilt trucks. And then after Peterbilt trucks went into advertising, he sold advertising. But people ask me that, you know, and... Uh, this is probably a fitting time as ever to tell this part of the story, but the slacks came over around the turn of the last century. And since then, every slack has started a business. So it's, you know, people say like, was your dad always an entrepreneur? I'd say, yeah, just because of that nature. Yeah. My, grand, my grandfather's an entrepreneur. My great-grandfather's huh. an entrepreneur. My great-grandfather's an entrepreneur. Well, let's, I, well, I'd love to take it back a little bit. Came yeah. from where? Uh, England. So, England, okay. And I, this story is fuzzy, depending on which family member you talk to. So you can get like different examples of it. But apparently there was um, some pretty serious famine going on over there. And so they put a 14-year-old on the boat by himself and said, go to America. There's opportunity. Um, he came to America. He ended up making it to Denver, Joseph Slack. And then he came back to Knoxville after getting married at like 17. And by like 20, had started a plating business for the railroads. Here. 
in Knoxville. Yeah. Is this like great grandfather, great 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 grandfather? Okay. Um, and then you know I also tell the story that none of those slack businesses have transferred to the next generation. So we're really good at lifestyle businesses, not so much legacy businesses. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're uh, the Vanderbilt's not the Rockefeller's. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not even close to either one of those, but sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, and then um, my grandfather had a equivalent to the IT business of the sixties. He fixed TVs. Huh. So uh, he had a TV let's repair not, business. Let's not put that on us. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going down. It We're not going to... down. Okay. I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Not the same. Not the same. Um, and so he did TV repair and then joined my dad in the boat business. Kind of, he was more like half retired, half not retired hmm. when he joined dad. Um, and then in 92, dad got out of the boat business in a very uh, not positive way um and so that's that's also a part of the story of now because people say you know what what happened early on in life or what what did your life what did, what did your life look like to get you to where you could be an entrepreneur and, I'll, and i tell people there's a couple things one having parents having a uh, a connected family like our, our family is very tight-knit mm. um but then also having parents who were entrepreneurs and saw the ups and downs. Mm. So, you know, in 87, 88, we built a house in a cul-de-sac in, West, uh, in Riverbend, you know, down the street from the P-Club, nice house in the woods. And, you know, 92, we've sold the house, sold the cars, and are renting a house. Because things went down. They went so far south. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, in 87, they, my mom started, well, dad, they like to joke around and say mom's the founder, but that probably really helped, you know, get it out of the ground. A book, a bookstore huh. in Pigeon Forge. So in 92, in the boat dealership, which was the main source of income, went away. Dad shifted all his focus to the bookstores and started growing those. And so, wow, you know, living in that kind of entrepreneurial family, when you get these highs and you get these lows, I think it kind of conditions you that that's okay. Yeah. It's just part of life. Whereas I tell some people these stories and they're like, what? <laughs> so it didn't, it, that didn't, um, it didn't create resistance in you. Like one of my daughters is like, no way. Like I've because seen, you've seen it. Like my, my parents were, my dad is, um, he's in the sixties and seventies, the positive mental attitude movement was really moving. Mm-hmm. And, Peel, mm-hmm. and I think he subscribed to a lot of those things. So dad, I think did a great job growing up would spin it, not, not negatively spin, but just, Hey, we've got lemons. Let's make lemonade yeah. in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, each of these things was an adventure more than a setback. Yeah, That's you know, an opportunity rather than like a a fault. You know, I was uh, I was asked yesterday um, in, in a, a class that I'm taking about how our parents um, maybe influence us positively, negatively. And one of the things I thought of, I'm curious how your parents did this. Is you know, my parents never never told me I couldn't do anything. And, and when I say that, I don't mean, I mean, they said like, you can't stay out past midnight. That's right. not what I mean. But but if I said, I want to be president or I want to be, you know, these are our things I said, you know, I want to be a professional baseball player or I want to, they never said, well, you can't do that. Right. You yeah, know, that was, a, that was absolutely not allowed in our house. Like everything was, you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah, um, interesting. And, and I think that's shaped me in a way that's made me Maybe in some respects not always good, but mostly fearless. Right. Yeah. You know, to do the things that you're t- like, well, let's do I it. I can do it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. You want me to start a business? Okay, I'll go do that. And I think kids have to. At least my kids. I won't speak for all kids. My kids have this kind of 
innate pushback against that. Like mm-hmm. they don't, they don't truly believe that. I don't think. I think that's something you have to condition over time. Like yeah. you have to constantly say because they, you know, they go to school and they get in the system and they maybe get a C or a D. And so all of a sudden it's like the system has valued them less than, yeah. even though that's not really indicative to like the future. That's right. It and, is. Yeah. And we go to school and teach our kids, like you got to do this, 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 and then take this test. And if you pass the test, if you're good at test, you're valued. Yeah, and that right. value will then transcend into the marketplace. Yeah. And it's like, hmm, that's actually opposite. So I think you have to constantly tell your kids like that's, that's not how your value is. Yeah. That's not where your value lies. Yeah. That's really important. I hadn't really thought about it much that way, but I think, you know, like again, some kids are great at math, some kids are great at English, but because it's all on one report card, and it's like, oh, look at this, B-A-B-A-A-C, and you immediately fixate on them with that C. Well, I'm just, it's just something that's not your deal. Right. You know, and it may not be necessary, yep. you know, into the future, so that's interesting to think about that. What, were you a good student? No, terrible student. Were you really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was a terrible test taker. Huh. I, my mom would tell the story. I was a little bit rebellious in high school. My mom would no. tell the story that I would come home from school and I would work really hard to get all my homework done. Like I would not even ask to do huh. anything and, and self-motivated. I would get my homework done and then I would go rebel. So it was just kind of like a <laughs> dichotomy of like, you do this really well, but then you go and rebel after that. Um, but because I was so diligent with homework, I could make up for my failing tests. Interesting. And I would average a B average in school. Huh. So, you know, every, every C I got, I just had to find a way to make an A. And that was kind of their rules. They said 3.0, we're okay with that. You got to find a way to deliver that. Interesting. And so... Did they micromanage the that at all? No. No, I think... Really? And I don't know if that's so much a... You know, people talk about the boomers, like, mm-hmm. you know, the baby boomers way of parenting. My parents definitely probably fall into that, but I think it was also intentional and unique on on their part as well to give us space. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a, it was the opposite of helicopter parenting to, mm-hmm. to a good degree. I yeah. mean, like I, we thank them for that now. It's the kind of stuff I think of from a business perspective, like set the expectations and don't micromanage the, the way there, you know, as long as it's yep. legal, ethical, moral. So, you know, you wrote down some of your influences. Who, who were they? Who were like your influences and heroes as you were growing up? Yeah, and this is a you know cheesy answer, but it was my dad. Um, and really both my parents. I think they complement each other really well. Um, but dad was just, it just was motivating to watch him uh, live his life, walk in a relationship with people. You know, it's just always been along the way. He's, he's provided an example of what the future could look like. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a certain aspect of like, when you're a child, you're trying to re- maybe come out from underneath that. Yeah. And instead, with me and probably going into the family business helped us. Like it's, it's been the opposite. It's it, it, each step along the way. It's like, that's what it looked like at 30. Mm-hmm. That's what it looked like at 40. That's what it looked like at 50. And I keep thinking, gosh, surely this is going to wear down, you know, <laughs> but it's just, even now at 67 years old, you know, I was in a meeting with him yesterday thinking this is what it could look like at 67. Huh. Like I just, he's, he's, He's just a very impressive individual. Yeah. He's still that guy for you. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, still absolutely. your hero. Yeah, I mean, I, and not in like a, a hero's a. I think that's an okay word. I think it's probably more of just mentor, mm-hmm. um, leader, somebody you just want to emulate. Yeah. It, it would. I, I've had other people tell me that about him that are not his son. Yeah. So I don't think it's a function of like, because he's my dad. I mm-hmm. think it's more a function of like, his life what he's chosen his lifestyle to look like, I want mine to look like. That's fascinating. I wonder 
the men that I've interviewed so far have, many of them have pointed to their dad. But there's a lot of people who don't feel that way. Yeah. You know, and so I think to, you know, in your situation, you know, your dad being an entrepreneur and kind of blazing a trail, it's encouraging. What did you want to do? Like you were as a kid, like what were the things that you were like, <laughs> did you want to, like, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like, was that something that came out of your mouth <laughs> at, um, at those early ages? No, I don't think so. I think my dad probably, you know, I tell this story and it makes it sound like it was all the time and that's not that's not an accurate representation. I think he certainly was bending me towards finance hmm. at an early age, um, you know, letting me see the financials of the bookstores when I'm 14 years old hmm. and, you know, talking through those. Again, this wasn't like every Monday we had a finance class, yeah. it was probably <laughs> twice. But it was, you know, enough to where I kind of, I started drifting towards that angle. Numbers, I liked math. Huh. Um, you know, so I, I really wanted to work with him. You know, when I was 13, my grandmother also on my mom's side worked in the business. She was, uh, did some bookkeeping, but then also worked in the store. So we worked shifts together at our Merchants Road store. With your grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother and I worked shifts <laughs> together, 13, 14. Um, I just loved the book business. Huh. I mean, it was, uh, I was not a big reader until I probably hit seventh or eighth grade. Hmm. Um, but I love books. I love I love the the simplicity of organizing them, of yeah. them being arranged. You know, right. um, I just enjoyed enjoyed that that aspect of it. And so, you know, I always wanted to work with him. And his mantra from as early as I can remember, they told my brother and I was, "You guys have to work for another boss. I don't want to be your only boss." So you graduate college, you go work somewhere for a couple of years, then you come work for me if oh. you still want to. Still... But you've got to leave the nest. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, it didn't happen, but it was, <laughs> but, it was, it was but again, from like 13 <laughs> till probably three weeks before I started working for him. That was the mantra. Huh. Providence would have it probably two months before I graduated um, or got finished with enough of my school. I graduated a little bit after that, but I was, I was done effectively with school. The business doubled. Mm. And so it was one of these things where the business doubled and he looked at it and said, I'm going to have to hire. I'm going to oh, have to hire for this yeah. position. And he, so we sat down and he said, if you're really, really wanting to come back in two years, I guess this would be foolish for me to go ahead and make this hire mm. and then have to figure out what to what do with it in yeah. two years. So was your job like growing up as far as like summer work and stuff, the bookstores? Is that yep. what you did? It was the bookstores, retail until I turned 16. And then I was, the, I would deliver books. Um, so probably two months after I gave my driver's license, which is kind of insane to think about. I was put on the route and I would take books around. Up until that point, my dad was doing it. Tell us about the business because I'm not sure we follow. Like, no yeah. one thinks of a bookstore delivering books. Yeah, I <laughs> know, right? I mean, Amazon. Yeah, that's a total yeah, this is, it's, People like, especially young people here in this are like, bookstores, I've heard these things. <laughs> um, so we were in the gray market book industry. Um, the book industry has this very funny thing that still doesn't exist. Well, I think it still exists today. I've been out of it for about 10 years where um, a, a retail shop can buy a thousand copies of a new bestseller. Mm -hmm. And at the end of say 60 days, they only sell a hundred copies. Well, they can send 900 copies back. They call them remainders, they right? They call them remainders yeah. or returns. Yeah. Remainders and returns are a little bit different, but they can send those back for a full credit at the publisher. Interesting. Well, the publisher, they have stickers on them. Sometimes they're struck with right. a mark. The publisher can't then go sell those back into retail. Right. And so they would work with middlemen to basically sell them into the gray market. Mm. There's a man named Paul Cow in town. He was kind of the grandfather of remainder books in mm. Knoxville. Okay. Um, he was doing these short-term events where he would go into a town 
and he would open up a bookstore for 90 days and then he would move to a different town. And the reason that they had to do that was because most of the time, remainders and returns, you're only getting like the top 10%. So you couldn't have a traditional bookstore. Mm. You didn't didn't go into our our bookstores and see, you know, 20,000 different titles. You went in and saw the top 2,000 titles. Mm -hmm. They were grossly discounted, you know, because of that. But it wasn't like a traditional bookstore. So dad had the idea, he was with Paul in 87 and a buddy of his name, Larry May. And he had the idea of what if we took it to a transient population? So rather than move the bookstore from town to town, mm. let's buy this product and put it in a place like Pigeon Forge. Where people are coming in and out. Where people are coming in and out. Okay. And so he went up looking for like 2,000 square feet. And <laughs> he walks in to this 15,000 square foot location, strikes up a deal with this guy, and ends up signing three five-year lease options on this space for, at the time, a very reasonable rate. And he opens up this bookstore. But it was just like the, one of these things where you, he, he picked the right day to be in Pigeon Forge, the right time to <laughs> the right guy to get the right space. That books were still up there, huh. but they're still operating it. So well, Same business? A book same warehouse. Remainders, yeah. same thing. Just one location. We had about 12 locations when it, at its height. 12. Yeah, at its height. Not, like, not in Knoxville, obviously. All, yeah, East Tennessee. So we were right. from Knoxville to Bristol. Um, I had one in Chattanooga for a minute, but that didn't, didn't last long. So mostly we had probably five in Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg area. Mm-hmm. We had a warehouse where we'd bring the books in and we'd have to price them. And so you'd get, which this leads us into a business that we did later on, but you'd get, you know, a thousand copies of one title and 10 copies of another. Mm-hmm. And you have to make the decision of like, okay, with because we have a thousand of this, we got to price it at, you know, $3.99. Mm-hmm. This one we can price at $8.99. And so it was very... It was it was value based pricing more than cost yeah, based. Interesting. Based on the quantities we got, yeah. the author was it a bestseller? Was it mm-hmm. a bestseller? And so we would do all that centrally, and then distribute them to the locations. Well, I was that guy, so I would. So you drove them to the location. Yeah, I would load them. So up the delivery out. wasn't to somebody's house. You were delivering. You were distributing it to your all's intercompany delivery. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And okay. I often would uh, wish my dad was selling pillows, not books. But it was a good. <laughs> it was a good. Jobs. Did you buy the books or does the book company, the publisher, just say, here's these books, we want 10% of what you get for them? Like, right. How did that business work? Yeah, no, so we would buy them. Um, American Book Company was one of our larger vendors, so they had most of the secular market tied up. Okay. And then Dad used the model that uh, Dean had used in American Book Company and went into the Christian side. So we had a company called SAS and Associates, which was a wholesale, it was like American Book Company, but it was wholesale. It was your company? It was our company. Okay. Um, but it was all Christian books. Gotcha. And so dad would go to the Christian publishers Got and it. negotiate deals where we would say, we'll take all your returns for you know this year for seven cents of the dollar. Mm-hmm. So if you know you ship us, you know, hundred thousand dollars worth of books, we'll pay seven thousand dollars for that. Yeah. Sight unseen. Now we get box trucks with Gaylords filled up with books, we have no clue what we're no idea what's on. No so it could be a bunch of junk. Could be, but yeah. we knew the publishers we were going after, so right. we would target specific publishers huh. that we knew were selling bestsellers at the time. Yeah like a Crossway or a Multnomah yeah. or a Zonderman. Hmm. And so we'd get in with those publishers and we'd know the product that was going to be in there. Yeah. And then we'd supplement on the secular side, going through American Book Company. That's why. And buying those. So yeah, it was, I mean, from a economics, supply and demand, I mean, it was a fabulous business to grow up in just mm-hmm. because there were so many different pieces to it that it wasn't, it wasn't just like somebody came in and filled out a reorder sheet. Like it was, it was very complex. Um, which I think gave us the right, you know, the proper, you know, uh, 
modes to stay in it as long as we did. You know, yeah. it was, Amazon should have probably put us out in 2003. <laughs> we stayed on at least seven more years. Uh, to me, it's just fascinating because I, I'm just listening to this, again, the whole idea of threads. Like, I'm listening to this of, like, growing up with kind of the expansive freedom to sort of move and learn and, and, and uh, not be told you can't do something. And then you're kind of, you're moved into this family business over time where all of a sudden you're getting an MBA. Oh yeah. You know, on, on uh, supply and demand, economic, economic theory, macro and microeconomics, you know, pricing plans and, you know, distribute, like you have wholesale, you have distribution, you have retail, like yeah. all of a sudden, like you have grown up in all this, you know, stuff also with parents who you admire and are, you know, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it was a, I, I mean, I could not have drawn it up any better. I mean, those, the family business is no longer around. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of it that's still there, but you know, people will ask me like, you know, are you glad you're out of it? I'm like, oh no, I, I miss, I miss it. I mean, like it was, it, leaving it was not an easy decision. It was a very difficult decision. Um, the industry just forced us to, like we didn't have a choice. Um, but yeah, it was great. I mean, I, at 24 years old, I was given, I was named the general manager of the bookstore business. So, you know, this is now at probably six locations and charged with expanding. And I went and opened a location in Bristol with basically a blank check. And he said, you know, we, he helped me scout it out. Well, right. I, mean, I was up there driving back and forth. Once we found one that I thought would, would do well, he came up and said, yeah, this looks good. But then it was on me. Hmm. I mean, sink or swim. <laughs> and I spent way too much money. I mean, that was the <laughs> first store I opened. And I think my last store cost a tenth of my first store. Wow. Um, of course, my last store only lasted about a year before everything started <laughs> turning. Um, what did, did so you, you spent too much money. How did he respond? What'd you learn? Huh. I mean, it was, it was never. He didn't stop you. He was seeing, he saw you spend the money. Oh, yeah. He wasn't just like sitting, but like no, no, idly was, by. He mm -hmm. was watching the money go. So it was rational sum. It yeah. wasn't like an, it wasn't like I was, right. you know, doing something that was. 10x what he would do right it was probably 2x what he would have done in that situation right. but he certainly yeah let me watch it watched it and you know when i would bring him things he would consult but dad has you know the way to describe his parenting and management style is you know just freedom what you've already said and responsibility he'll say you know one of the big i've got a lot of dadisms um that i still use today in the business um but one of the things in management that he taught me early on was authority and responsibility have to match. Mm -hmm. Like anytime you've got somebody that's working with you, if you give them the responsibility to do something, you better match that authority. Mm -hmm. As soon as those two things get untethered, you're gonna have an employee that's gonna wanna leave you. Yeah. And so he treated us that way. Whenever he would ask us to do something, give responsibility, he would match that authority. authority. Even at 24 years old. Wow. Like he was, you know, I see a, where family businesses in my mind break down or where I see them break down, is parents will say, I want you to be responsible for this. And then they'll match that with, come ask me what you can do with it. Mm. And so the, the child then feels like a child. Like a child, yeah. And they never get to go past that. You mentioned some other people who have made a big influence on you. Mike Hatcher. Yeah. So what's, what's uh, I think most of us probably are familiar with Mike's name from a real estate mm -hmm. perspective in Knoxville. He's got a real estate company here in town. And that, you know, Mike, if he listens to this or hears this, might be surprised. Mike, Mike was not a relationship from like my childhood. Mm. Mike was a relationship. My dad and Mike have been in um, a small group together for a while. 
And when I started Two Roads, my dad introduced me to Mike and said, I think you know, this guy would be willing to go to breakfast with you. And Mike at that time, he'd been in Hatcher Hill for probably three or four years. Can't remember how long he'd been around. I mean, he was growing, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that business, it was growing well. He was uh, in team health. He, he'd, he'd been very successful. Mm-hmm. So this is a 60-something, um, very successful individual, doesn't know me at all. And I remember going to that first breakfast and feeling immediately like this is my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Like, and he would be willing to get, put his wallet on the table and say, what can I do for you? And to this day, when I have conversations with Mike, um, I always feel a twinge of guilt because it's like, I've done nothing for you here. Like you've, <laughs> you've done nothing but listen to me, hear me out, and then point me in the direction I need to go. And I'm not getting back mm-hmm. to the relationship. And, and I'll say that to him, be like, Mike, can I do anything for you? And he's like, you know, this, people did this for me. Mm-hmm. And now I love to do this for young people. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, he's just been this resource that, you know, and I've gone years without talking to him. It'll be a podcast where I'll, you know, give years without talking to him. And then I'll see him and it's like, you just picked up right where he left off and he'll cool. counsel me, coach me, yeah. ask me hard questions. Um, so that's what I also tell people going into business, even at a young age, like ask people to watch. Yeah. You know, and I think we think we have to do it on our own. And we don't. Like, there's a lot of people, especially in Knoxville, I think. it's People say it's hard to break into, and that, that might be true, but also say, like, just ask. Yeah. You know, get, in, get some no's and then see where it goes from You're there. You're right about it. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that would generally just say yes, you yeah. know, and, and they just don't get asked right. to do it. And, and I would even say, to your point about Mike, I don't know if he would message it this way, but I bet for him, he's like, no, you are giving something to me. Yeah. You're giving me the chance to do something that I really love, which is to give back to somebody, yeah. you know, and that is something. Yeah. You know, that is, I think we would say that if it was, because we wouldn't want anything out of a right. relationship with the, you know, someone was younger and was asking us, like, I would, there, I wouldn't want anything from you. Yeah. You know, what, what you're allowing me to do is to give back, which is, which is a big deal. Yeah. In and of itself. So. Yeah. He was talking to my business partner and was just saying that we were talking about a different venture and. And Mike was just communicating his excitement for us. And uh, Will said something like, gosh, I appreciate you being excited, but again, I'm taking your time here. And he <laughs> goes, man, I just, I love hearing your all story where you're at. And, and I wish that I could, he didn't say do it all over again. That's not what he was communicating, but just the idea, this idea of like, we're at the beginning, he's mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. Um, and just the joy he gets in seeing what could mm-hmm. unfold yeah. is a lot of fun. Yeah, so. that's cool. And what about Bill Mancini? Yeah, Bill's another one of those guys that just, you know, he was one of probably the first clients at Two Roads, maybe client Hmm. number five with a business prior to what he's doing now. Um, And within probably a month, I had roped him into, at the time I built this kind of like faux board. So it was like basically three really smart people that I knew. I just said, hey, can can you guys meet with us quarterly? I, I'd never started a business before, so at least my own, I'd never started a business before. So, you know, he was, I roped him onto that board pretty quickly. Mm. And then, you know, we just became friends, but him and Mike are just very similar in that, mm. you know, they'll sit down with you, hear you out, challenge you. He never necessarily spoke this over me, but just in hearing him and his stories, I'll tell my team often, we're not brain surgeons. Yeah. We're not heart surgeons. Yeah. Nobody's on the table. We're not flying planes. Nobody's on the table. Yeah. So, we're going to be okay if we make a mistake. We just need to be humble and own it, figure out how to address it, figure out how to solve the problem. But 
don't take yourself too seriously. Because I think in any business, I think accounting especially, but in any business, IT, I'm sure you guys feel it as well. Like everything's an emergency yeah, and you gotta sure. calm it down. Yeah. Like, hey, this is a big deal to you. It's gonna be a big deal to me. We wanna solve it. All right. Let's not get ourselves in the hospital Diffusing. over it. Yeah. I would, one, one thing I would, uh, before we kind of switch gears, I'd love to know about people who've made a profound influence just because I love this guy is George Brown, which is interesting because oh, yeah. George would be more in your age group. Yeah. Where the rest of these guys are older, generally older guys, you know. Yeah. If, if anybody listening knows George, um, they might find it interesting that we're so close. But yeah, George and I were acquaintances in college. He, uh, acquaintances enough where he filmed our wedding video. So, I mean, we were, we were close, but not necessarily, you know, close friends. And then he went to New York, Nashville, then he went to New York, and he came back around oh, 07, 08. And we just quickly hit it off and have been, you know, meeting weekly every other week since then. And he just, his energy, his positivity, his care for people, I want to be a better man. I want to be like George Brown when I grow up, you know. <laughs> and so he just is a it's just a reminder. I mean, when I get in the throes of it, of just what it means to care for your family, yes, what it means do. to love your kids, yeah. what it means to love other people. I mean, he is so busy. When you talk to him, you don't pick up on that. Yeah. Like he's got so many things on his plate, and you'll call him, and it's like he's just ready to talk, hear what's going on in your world. Yeah. So I mean, he's just a salt of the earth guy yeah well real quick so you were you graduated from high school you went to ut went to ut why didn't you leave why go to ut uh so my wife is my high, my high school sweetheart really we started dating uh the very end of my junior year okay and all the way through our senior year she likes to tell the story that i broke up with her after my <laughs> senior year and you know threatened to go away to school and i felt like i needed to go figure out life or whatnot and about a week later realized that was the stupidest thing i could possibly do because this woman is amazing yeah. and uh went begging her to take me back wow. and once i made I, that week and this sounds too simple and maybe it shows how simple my brain is but that week realizing this is going to be my wife like i i just knew at the end of it I, I want to marry this woman and so about a month later i went to the guidance counselor at ut and said i i'm not i didn't i don't love school I already said that i don't love tests i don't love academia i love learning mm-hmm. i'm a i'm a constant reader i'm always listening and reading a book at any given time um but i knew to marry her i needed to graduate <laughs> and so i went to the guidance counselor and said how do fast can I get out of here? Huh. And literally built a spreadsheet. This will probably show my OCD brain a little bit. <laughs> literally built a spreadsheet of every class I had to take every semester. And the, they had many terms back then. Yeah. I still do that in May. Huh. You could take a couple classes. And then summer. I didn't take any time off. I worked. I mean, I did school all the way through. Wow. Graduated. I got, got done in three years. Graduated in three. I had to take an extra class to actually finish. Mm-hmm. I think it was racquetball in the fall <laughs> of that year. Um and, and graduated, so we got married after our junior year, after uh, her junior year of college. Huh. So it was a very, wow. college for me was very, I was focused. Yeah. Um, but I did Young Life, I was a Young Life leader, led a team there, delivered books, worked retail. So I mean, it was busy. I enjoyed a lot the school, the pro- once I got into the business school after freshman and sophomore year, I enjoyed those classes a lot. Mm. Um, but even then, they did, they're not necessarily applicable to me today. Yeah. Now my wife likes to say it's about, um, Ellen is pro school, and I, I think I am as well because it's accomplishment. I think you're sure. you're moving in order of accomplishment yeah. up. Yeah. You know.
let's talk about professional. Like you graduated from college, you told the story already. Like three weeks before that, your dad's like, "Let's do this." So you didn't do anything any different. Like, yeah, I was getting a logistics and transportation degree. Uh, really? I applied. Uh-huh. Yeah, logistics and transportation, not an accounting degree. Nope. Interesting. <laughs> More about that later. <laughs> and uh, I applied to, like international paper. And had some interviews, was marching down through that path. I mean, I, it was, you know, I, I, I was going to go corporate route for two years and do my thing. And then, lo and behold, jumped into the family business right away. That was fun. I always enjoy listening to Adam. Tune in for part two as we transition to his business career, uh, working through the family business all the way up to launching Two Roads and sort of the twists and turns of what it was to launch Two Roads, sell Two Roads, buy back into Two Roads. It's kind of a crazy story. So stay tuned in two weeks for part two.